Welcome to Season 5 of American Political History, Rise of the Metropole, War in the Colonies. In 1676, Londoners simultaneously learned of unrest in Virginia, war in New England, and a slave revolt in Barbados. These topics became the talk of the coffee houses. Whitehall was learning of the war in Virginia along with the coffee houses, and took this as an insult to the king's authority against Sir William Barclay. Barclay's unwillingness to report to Whitehall insinuated that the Virginia colony had some sort of autonomy. This was what Whitehall was most concerned about, the revolts themselves easy enough to put down. Whitehall turned to other sources of information about what was happening in Virginia. They received reports from a dissenting royal officer who had traveled back to England. He gave testimony to incompetence and corruption of the government of Virginia, which he said was the primary cause for the people revolting. Three months would pass before Whitehall learned of Colonel Washington's attack on the Susquehannock and the introduction of an Indian war into the Virginia crisis. Representatives of the Virginia colony stationed in London would attempt to frame that the origins of this revolt was that the Virginian elites lacked the authority in their charter to deal with this type of crisis. And their logic continued that the king must give them authority and autonomy to take actions in light of this war against a unified Algonquian foe. This argument, from Virginia might have worked in 1630 when the monarchy was distracted with civil wars and was looking to delegate the colonies to privileged English gentlemen. But King Charles II had changed the paradigm. He was now after the exact opposite. And the Virginia crisis was an excellent excuse to rein in the king's authority all over his colonies. The Privy Council, after hearing these Virginians' testimony revoked consideration of debate over any new charter. On April 22, 1676, the Privy Council referred a petition of Sarah Bland to the Committee on Royal Plantations. Sarah was the mother of Giles Bland, who was the royal customs collector in Virginia. The dispute she was presenting was between Giles and Philip Ludwell. In her telling, the king's royal officer, her son, had taken actions against Ludwells for circumventing the king's custom laws, the Navigation Acts, and the Virginia Assembly had taken actions of retribution against the king's royal custom officer. The Blands were a well-connected family in England. Giles' father had been the mayor of Tangiers and had many connections in London, including renting the office spaces to the Admiralty and Privy Council. Additionally, the Blands had often represented the Lord Treasurer's interests abroad. Utilizing the Privy Council's recent rejection of the proposed Virginia Charter, Sarah connected her plea with that failed attempt, testifying that Thomas Ludwell was the Virginia Colony's secretary and was a major proponent of the proposed Virginia's Charter of Autonomy from the King's authority. This minor melodrama between families would normally be an unimportant detail of history, except that this melodrama would be utilized by the Privy Council to react in ways that would normally be politically unpalatable for London's populace. If the king had just decided to use his military to suppress Englishmen, it would look as if it was a return of his father's oppression. Now, as opportunity had it, with a colony that was in revolt, rejecting English laws, disrupting the empire's trade, well then, 
it was well within the crown's authority to set this wayward colony straight. But first, they needed to verify these accounts. The Bland family had a generational reputation of picking fights with every governor they encountered. Giles Bland's father had quarreled in Tangiers with Treasurer Norwood, so they asked Treasurer Norwood of his analysis of the accounts in Virginia. It took a few weeks, as Treasurer Norwood was seriously ill, but his reply was unexpectedly devastating to the current administration in Virginia. Norwood laid the blame for all of the problems in Virginia squarely at the feet of the Virginians themselves. High taxes caused by their corruption and misappropriation of funds, corruption of tax money, had led to unbuilt coastal forts which allowed the very notion that Indians had any chance against the English. And the circumventing of royal law brought serious questions of loyalty to those granted authority within the colony and its governance. Sarah, unwittingly, had brought the Privy Council exactly what it wanted, a political excuse that allowed them to use force over English settlers and the ability to impose militarily their new imperial system. Additionally, in the process of addressing colonial affairs, Whitehall stumbled upon a motivation within London politics, a motivation which aligned the king's interests with the interests of the merchants of London. London's economy was more and more entrenched in revolving around overseas trade, especially trade with English colonies. Virginia and the crisis there was not just threatening the king's interests on his tax receipts, it was threatening the profits of every English merchant themselves. Suddenly, the king found himself able to get accessible loans from the merchants of London, something the crown had not been able to rely on for generations. The merchants of London were more than willing to open their pocketbooks so the king could take on this mission of imperial stability. This symbiosis of mercantile class and English crown and authority would grow into the colonial empire in which the sun would never set, and a colonial empire that would rule most of the world until World War II. It spawned by accident a shared realization and coincidence when addressing a crisis in the Virginia colony in 1676. In June, Sir Barclay's letter finally appeared at Whitehall. Barclay stressed the interdependence of the Virginia crisis on those other crises happening in the West Indies and New England. He also claimed that causes of Virginia Indian War was that the New England Algonquian nations had spread their discontent south into Virginia. Sir Barclay's explanation assumed that his audience in London had no accurate information on what was happening in New England. But Londoners were reading accounts of that war in their daily papers, whose information was never older than 30 days. Every Londoner was knowledgeable and opinionated about the conflict in New England, discussing it daily within the coffee houses. And they did not share Barclay's account of the war in New England. Not only was Sir Barclay ignorant of the knowledge in London of the King Philip's War, Barclay was ignorant that the Privy Council had shelved the proposed new Virginia Charter. He spent much of the time pushing for this proposed new charter, saying that the lack of autonomy to circumvent the Navigation Acts compounded the damage in Barbados since they could not directly send them aid and had to send all trade to London and then back to Barbados with such a long two-way trip. If only Virginia was given the autonomy, they could have used that to send aid quicker and resolve these crises within the colonies themselves. 
On July 1st, 1676, the Admiralty ordered three warships to escort transports filled with an army bound for Virginia. Ten days later, the Privy Council would receive word of Bacon's revolt and its spread over Virginia. On July 10th, Secretary Coventry wrote at the King's command to Sir William Barclay, saying that they would send 300 troops paid by the King to restore order. The representatives of Virginia who were in London protested this, saying they they could not feed the Crown's men. The Crown should just send them weapons and powder instead. They, They can handle it. Then London received Barclay's letter asking to be recalled from his post. Barclay wrote, I am so overwhelmed with writing into all parts of the country to stop this violent rebellion that I am not able to support myself at the age of 66 any longer. Therefore, on my knees, I beg his majesty would send a more vigorous governor. If you remember, this was a political stunt in Virginia, which forced a consolidation of support in the Virginia Assembly around Sir Barclay. But in Whitehall, this letter was seen as pathetic weakness and an open door for Whitehall to take more dramatic action. The Virginia crisis also gave cover for the king's Catholic brother, James, the Duke of York, to now publicly resume his place within the Privy Council in defiance of the Test Act of 1673. The Duke of York quickly claimed the top spot as preeminent member of the Privy Council. First, he appointed himself to the chair of the powerful admiralty, and then the foreign affairs committees. He ordered the admiralty to provide more warships for the Virginia expedition. He then commissioned army officers needed to subdue revolt and revitalize Virginia's tobacco production. Then, the Duke of York, using his political power, pressured, forced, the Earl of Arlington and Lord Culpepper to surrender their proprietary rights to Virginia, The Duke wanted no possible future claims against the Crown's authority once Virginia was subdued, for a subdued Virginia was to become his new model English colony. The Duke of York then declared that Sir William Barclay was unfit to rule Virginia, and obtaining the King's signature for his removal, telling Colonel Jeffreys to remove Barclay and that Nathaniel Bacon must die. The Duke of York with the Privy Council now reviewed the details of how to implement this first imperial colony. They would appoint an army officer as military governor of the colony, with full powers to supersede any assembly or other colonial appointed officers. Not only would Colonel Jeffreys, this first military governor, be sent with an execution order for Nathaniel Bacon, he would be sent with the king's signature to judge the guilt of anyone who had assisted Bacon in this revolt, and execute them if he, the military governor, deemed them worthy of punishment. Whitehall made clear they expected the military governor to make regular, detailed reports and accounts assessing the situation in their colony. Jeffreys was also assigned to assess the causes of revolt and remedy those causes wherever able, with the goal of pacifying the Virginia colony and promoting economic stability through the tobacco trade. The Virginia representatives in London looked on in horror at the actions of the Duke of York. They desperately tried to petition him for just the restoration of the pre-rebellion governor. No new charter was needed. No new anything. On September 25th, two tobacco ships from Virginia reached England. They came with news that Bacon was now at the head of a militia of 1,400 men and had taken control over most of the Virginia colony, and that Barclay had fled to the eastern shores of the Virginia colony. 
the Privy Council proclaimed an embargo on all ships headed to Virginia. They expanded the naval squadron from three warships to six, doubled the number of troop transports, and acquired 130 military staff officers, and conscripted 100 redcoat regulars. Then arrived news of the Berkeleyans' capture of the Rebecca. Remember, that was the greatest warship currently in Virginia. The king ordered the immediate launching of the expedition to Virginia. That might seem counterintuitive. Barclay capturing the Rebecca would lead to the eventual recapturing of the Virginia colony by the Loyalists. But what were those Loyalists loyal to? The rulership of King Charles I, which had been based on political patronage and gentlemanly privileges. King Charles II wanted a new imperial rulership, where loyalty was best shown through radical accounting and accurate transferring of tax revenue to Whitehall. With no crisis in Virginia, he had no political cause to suppress a population of Englishmen with 1,000 soldiers and six warships. If the crisis ended in Virginia, then the political cover for colonial imperialism would end. So now, it was a race. Could King Charles II's forces arrive in Virginia before the crisis had ended? King Charles ordered the immediate sailing of the expedition to make all haste for Virginia. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.